The Outline World Dispatch. It's Tuesday, August 1st, 2017. I'm Sam Thonis. Today on The Dispatch, Adrian Jeffries on hacking voting machines. Nobody would sit there and say with a straight face, you know, my company is unhackable. Everything is hackable. Laura June on saving the earth. The goal set by the Paris Climate Agreement is one we're unlikely to hit. And Troy Farah on mythical drug parties. I haven't found any evidence so far that Narcan parties are happening. Here's the dispatch. The future. What happens when you give a bunch of computer hackers access to voting machines and three days to pick them apart? Last week at the infamous hacking convention DEFCON in Las Vegas, we found out. I thought this was like an eject button, but no, it's a battery test. There's another one here. Well, one of them was the power, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, power, and this one's battery test. Interesting. Hackers were told to do whatever they needed in order to figure out how they worked. So uh, hopefully you'll be able to just have a, have a chance to familiarize yourself with the interfaces that you're not supposed to use. Um, By the end of the three days, we had a long list of vulnerabilities. Hackers also discovered old voter registration data that was never wiped, unencrypted databases that could be tampered with to stop people from voting, and a ton of unnecessary ports that could be used to take over a machine. And yes, that is the sound of Rick Astley playing out of the win vote, the machine that was called the, quote, worst voting machine in the U.S., according to Verified Voting, a nonprofit that studies the issue and helped coordinate the vote hacking village at DEF CON. You know, I mean, in 25 years of DEF CON, we've never had access to voting machines before, and so... I think it's, it's a little bit of a feather in people's cap to be able to say they were able to get into a voting machine. I spoke to Jake Braun, a cybersecurity lecturer at the University of Chicago and a former White House liaison to the Department of Homeland Security. He helped organize the village. And, you know, the vendors have been very uh, cautious about this. Well, more than cautious. They've been not interested in, in allowing people to hack machines, their voting machines in the past and so on. And so it's not like most of these hackers have ever had a chance to hack a voting machine before. So I think just the novelty of it and the newness of it is is really appealing to me. So basically we encourage you to do the stuff that if on election day you did, they'd probably arrest you. Can you tell me in however much detail you can share how you got a hold of the machines? Yeah, yeah. Um, through basically three three methods. Number one, we found some on eBay. And these are like machines that are literally used in elections today. Um, And then we got some researchers who had had, like academics and others, who had had machines from years past when they were doing research or whatever. And then there were just other kind of random things where random people would pop up and say, oh, I have a machine from whatever, you know? But I mean, if you vote in the United States, it is, um, you know, probably a 90-some percent chance that the machine you vote on is in that room being attacked right now. So that could be an important panel. That's a hex screw. Okay. If it's dated. This, this dated. could be a manufacturer. Feel free to open it. Yeah. yeah. We just need a, we need a hex, we need a hex screw. And so there's a series of tables, and we have these machines set up on them. And it was great. I mean, like, the second the doors opened, these hackers came in and started just tearing the machines apart and everything. And they were cheering in there a minute ago because somebody was able to crash poll book and get access to the the voter file data on a on le- an electronic poll book. There's a lot of stuff. It's uh, Outlook Express. And, and actually the first two successful 
um, attacks happened within an hour and 40 minutes of the, of the um, Hacker Village being opened. Somehow this market is completely dominated by two companies, and somehow these companies are able to execute in secrecy and don't are completely unaccountable to election officials or the public. How did we end up with that situation where these private for-profit companies are like controlling this with no accountability? Yeah, so I mean that that's a really good point. I think, and and also, you know, it, it is often the vendors who are promulgating this notion that, frankly, you would be laughed out of the room if you said it at a conference like this that these machines are unhackable, or because they quote unquote don't touch the internet, um, they're unhackable or air gapped or whatever these asinine ideas. Um, the problem is that um, since so many of these clerks who are the ones buying this stuff uh, don't have a background in cybersecurity, then you know, kind of believe what they're told by the vendors that, oh, these machines are unhackable, and so therefore, you know, if you buy these, you're safe. So, so that's, I mean, essentially that's the point of, of what we're doing is to, is to completely destroy this notion of unhackability in this industry, as it has been destroyed in so many other industries like aerospace and defense, finance, and others where nobody would sit there and say with a straight face, you know, my company is unhackable. Everything is hackable. Uh, Did you both have that at the same time? Oh, wait, no, this is the back. What would that do? I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> <laughs> Just pressing buttons. How much of this is paranoia and how much is a real threat? Well, so, I mean, that's the whole thing is that, I mean, this was, you know, very much a tinfoil hat issue or fringe issue or viewed as such a year, I mean, literally a year ago. And... You know, Russia made this a real issue. Vladimir Putin made this a real issue. Now this is not paranoia anymore. This is, we know the Russians got into, you know, several dozen state networks. We know that they got into uh, voter registration databases. We even know that they got into some machines. And so, you know, you're only paranoid if they're not trying to kill you. And, and we now know that they are trying to, to kill or at least take over our democracy. I think the big thing is kind of, what's going to happen next and, and how. And and I think coming out of this, what I've found is that the level of interest that we're getting from generals, high-level intelligence officials, ambassadors, foreign policy experts, and so on, who absolutely understand the Russian threat and, by the way, are deeply concerned that North Korea, Iran, ISIS, and others are going to are going to um, mimic what Russia's doing and we're going to be fighting four or five different foreign adversaries at one time in our next election, are really planning to step up to the plate and advocate to Congress, uh, the administration, specifically Homeland Security, and these governors that this is a direct existential threat to the United States that is eminent and needs to be dealt with immediately. And that's something that you've just never had in this debate before. future. A new report published in the journal Nature Climate Change suggests that the goal set by the Paris Climate Agreement is one we're unlikely to hit. The agreement aims to limit overall warming of the Earth by less than 2 degrees Celsius. But based on recent carbon emissions data, the report says that there is only about a 5% chance of us hitting that goal. 
The Paris Agreement was signed by 196 countries, with the goal of setting it into motion beginning in the year 2020. Although the United States signed the accord under President Obama, President Trump pulled out on June 1, 2017. It was a move that was globally controversial and widely considered to be a massive blow to the agreement. Several U.S. states have committed to honoring the rules of the accord separately. California has a very imaginative and aggressive climate action policy. I'll also work with New York and Washington and several other states and what I call the uh, uh, under two coalition, a, uh, a group of 175 uh, different partners. We are agreed on a climate set of goals very similar to the Paris Agreement. And we are moving forward and will continue. The report concludes that the likely range of global temperature increase is 2.0 to 4.9 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. Culture. Naloxone is a drug that reverses opioid overdoses, bringing a heroin user back from the brink of death. It's often referred to by the brand name Narcan, and it resuscitated approximately 27,000 people in the United States between 1996 and 2014. Recently, though, some law enforcement and government officials have claimed that naloxone has led to riskier heroin use, including something called Narcan parties. But so far, there hasn't been any real evidence of them. Troy Farah reported on this trend for the outline. Hi, Troy. Hey, Sam. Are, are, is Narcan or naloxone, um, is that new? No. It was discovered in 1961 and was uh, given FDA approval in the 70s. It's been around for decades. Um, it's always been used regularly by paramedics um, and first responders. But in the 90s, it started becoming more um, available to regular drug users or people that have drug users and their family or their friends, you know, people who are at risk for an overdose. Can you just buy it at a, at a drugstore? No, you would have to get a prescription most places. But uh, more recently, as the opioid epidemic has gotten worse, more and more states um, have gotten, have, have pushed laws through allowing like easy access to naloxone. Um, okay. And Arizona, where I'm from, they just passed a law for that a year ago. Before that, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to get naloxone at all unless you called 911, and then you're waiting for a paramedic and your friend could die. But now you can go to a doctor and uh, just get a prescription for it. So it's been a little bit more prevalent recently, it sounds like, um, uh, and a little bit more talked about. And now there's all these stories going around that there are parties. What are the parties, you know, how do those work? There's different definitions, but one of them is that people are getting together in parties and they're mixing all the heroin together and they're doing as much as they want or even overdosing on purpose, which makes no sense. And it's, it's kind of like a total misunderstanding of what naloxone is supposed to be used for because there have been reports of people getting together in groups to use heroin and they have naloxone, but that's just smart. Um, I volunteered for a needle exchange for about a year, and that's the kind of harm reduction um, advice we would give to people. Is like heroin is a solitary activity for most people. They shoot mm-hmm. up alone. It's not um, a party drug, typically. Typically. Yeah. So you you 
encourage them to use in groups so in case one of them overdoses, they can be rescued. Yeah. And that's not the same thing as a Narcan party. That's not the same thing as people saying, well, now that I have Narcan, I'm going to do three or four times as much of heroin as I normally do, or I'm going to <laughs> purposely overdose. That doesn't make any sense. Where did this idea start? Like, who's who? Who was saying that there were party Narcan parties? You know, why is that being talked about? The furthest rumor I could find um, started in August 2016, when Senator Lisa Buscola and Representative Daniel McNeil were in a were at a caucus in Pennsylvania, and they were talking to members of the basically the harm reduction community, people who are saying like, hey, this is how we address the opioid epidemic. And they're like, well, these Narcan parties are happening. We don't think that we should make this more available. I haven't found any evidence so far that Narcan parties are happening. You think that there would be a, a police report or photos or videos or testimony or something. Um, all you hear are these politicians and these sheriffs saying that they're happening, but they're not providing anything more than that. And so why do you think the politicians are saying that these parties are happening? If, if, if they're not happening, if they're not actually getting evidence that they're happening, why are they claiming they are? I think people are saying these parties are happening is because they have a misunderstanding of addiction and how harm reduction works. They don't understand the role that naloxone plays in fighting this opioid epidemic. And so when they encounter a drug dealer selling Narcan, which does happen, then they think that they're encouraging riskier heroin use, which does not happen as far as I can, as far as the evidence is said to me. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much, Troy. Yeah, no problem. That concludes The Dispatch. I'm Sam Thonis. More stories tomorrow.